because no. that's not how you should think about <laughs> investing. You should be working from first principles to think about. So you should only be investing in areas you really deeply understand. And you can do this. You can invest in the kind of change you want to see in the world. Um, that's a bad idea, but it's the principled way if it aligns with what the value-based investing is telling you. Uh, or, or you can just know an area really well, understand the secular trends, and then sit long and tight and hope that the world realizes what you already know, which is that you're right. Hence the name for this podcast. I don't think that's why it's called this. <laughs> Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech. It's the Small Time Bets Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome back to Small Time Bets. Yeah. Uh, recording again from Waterloo. From the Dog podcast studio. Oh, very good. Um, dum, 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 dum. How have you been? Good. Busy week. Um, it's important that people leave us a review and follow us on Twitter. <laughs> You're so bad at this stuff. <laughs> yeah, follow us on Twitter. And I see that we have a YouTube. Now no, that we've had can one I video. just say something? Um, it's small underscore time underscore bets on Twitter. Correct. Yeah. So on TikTok, it's small time bets, all one word. Um, YouTube, it's a small time bets podcast and we have a discord which is in the show notes which a few people have used to just like ask questions also um fun update we actually have a merch store so yeah, what does that mean it means that if people want to actually support us or just be i guess a band ambassador or just wear t-shirts or have a clock or a magnet or whatever it is that you want a mug um you can look at our merch store the link is in the show notes. So it's all... you can buy cool stuff that's branded up with our Small Time Bets logo or inexplicably our faces. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. So this week, uh, we've got a slightly different format. We asked people if they had any questions and we've had a few people come back with some interesting questions. I'm so... excited. So what... we're doing this in two segments, right? So we're doing with the what's happening section. As yeah, usual. There's, there's a lot of questions about like tech and various other things. And then there's some that are very much our views on crypto. So I thought we'd split them up. Very good. Um, Let's start with the tech ones. So um, just a bit of context and background for this one. I think it's important. This summer, as of June, the um, iPhone active installed base surpassed 50% in the US of smartphones and feature phones. Um, so in other words, iPhones past the 50% mark, beating out Android to be the majority market share in the good phones space. In the US. And has therefore installed global base, passing 1 billion. And um, that is huge. Now, in that context of people finally realizing that iPhones are the phones to get, is the question for you, Jonathan, from our listeners is, is Apple worth it? Or are you just paying a premium for being a mug? I can give my view on it. I think Apple is worth it for certain products. And if you're fully in an Apple ecosystem, it kind of makes sense. Like I completely get it. If you have a MacBook, have AirPods, have an iPhone, probably have an iPad, you probably shouldn't be thinking, oh, maybe I should switch to Android now because the dust, there's just so many reasons why that's going to be painful. Are you a mug for paying the premium? Uh, on some devices, I would say yes. There are certain things where you probably don't need to go full hog with apple 
um, I think you can get away with a cheaper Windows laptop and still have an iPhone and still have a perfectly good experience. Um, I think you can get away with a like a cheap iPad without having to go full iPad Pro, blah, 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 highly spec one and still be fine. What, what is the premium you're paying for Apple hardware? Designed in California, built by Foxconn in it's about Shenzhen. 35% margin that Apple gets. So you're paying a premium to get the Apple hardware. Apple services uh, see a margin to Apple of 70%. So those are healthy margins. Mm. Now, so yes, last night I was reading Working Backwards, which I previously on this po podcast said that I have read, but I actually hadn't read it. I was lying. Uh, I have now read it. It's uh, really great. It's the story of Amazon. And one of the chapters is all about the founding of Amazon Video. Don't worry, this is going somewhere. One of the problems that Amazon Video had was that they found themselves in the middle of the value chain as an aggregator only. So they didn't make any product and they didn't have any way of getting to the customer. And when they started with Amazon Unbox, they had so many problems because they couldn't, they just couldn't get to the living room. Right? They were constrained by the terrible digital rights management of Windows Media Player, which is very buggy. And they were constrained by the fact that um, they were playing across multiple hardware devices. Hmm. I think what Apple has done from the outset, ever since the iPod, is said, no, we're going to own the delivery mechanism, that's the hardware, and we're going to fuse hardware, software, and services. That's worth paying a premium for. Because if you can control hardware and software, so the end-to-end -end delivery of the stuff, and the services that sit on top of that, you can deliver a much better user experience. Unfortunately, screen times go up and up every year. We're now spending an inordinate amount of time with these physical aluminium case devices. Huge amount of time. Is it worth spending a little bit more to get one that works really nicely? Uh, I can't answer that for everyone, but for a lot of people, clearly now the majority, the answer is yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm with that. So basically, you're not a mug if you're buying an Apple product, because in some cases, it's worth the premium. So, um, oh, this is very up your street. In California and many other places, they're banning the sale of petrol cars in the next decade or two. And can the power grids handle this new inflow of EVs? And what changes are you expecting as a result of this? And I think in California recently, like a day apart, they'd said, they'd announced the 2035 ban on petrol cars and then they'd said the day after please don't charge your electric car because our grid can't handle it at the moment because of climate change but what are your views so if everybody in california buys an electric vehicle it takes about seven years seven to twelve years for the entire vehicle park to cycle out so let's say that all vehicles on the road are somehow magically or even 75 percent of them are magically electric vehicles by mm. 2035 Yes, that's difficult for the electricity grid. It's even worse if they all plug in around about 6 p.m. when people come back from work. Yeah. So it's both the problem and the solution to the problem. Because mm. electric vehicles are batteries on wheels that other people have paid for, which is great. So never before have you had the wealthiest part of the population uh, stump up their own cash to bring a solution to the otherwise struggling utility industry. It's terrific, right? So they're bringing their batteries to you. And all we have to do as a society is figure out when to use those batteries and how. There are a few question marks around using vehicles to stabilize the grid. 
including things like the equipment to do bidirectional charging is quite expensive, including things like every time you discharge or recharge a battery, those aren't infinite cycles that you've got to play yeah, with. Yeah, the lifespan degrades, right? And uh, you might want to think about what margins you're keeping the battery state of charge within. But um, those can all be figured out. So in the end, kind of the answer is, yes, if it was really badly handled with insufficient innovation because of regulatory kind of obstacles and insufficient you know, internal incentives for people to uh, play ball and help the grid with their EV, then it could be an absolute nightmare. The other thing is that uh, you are only as green as the grid is. Mm. And we are going to see the percentage of renewables in the grid increase between now and 2035, and partly because of the Inflation Re Reduction Act. But that's good news, because when you're charging up the electric vehicle, you know you are going to be using more and more green electrons. So part of what this answer is, is about making sure that those vehicles are getting charged First of all, not all at 6 p.m., but also partly to do with when the renewables are happening. So when it's windy, it, let's let's create the incentives for people to charge when it's windy. Like in the UK, Octopus Energy is doing plunge pricing. When it's particularly windy, you can even be paid to charge, as, as you know. Um, when solar, it's a very sunny day. Let's make sure that people are charging their vehicles at those times. That might mean workplace charging. So those are all things to think about. Mm. No, interesting. One other question. Would you would you invest in an inverse Kramer ETF? Uh, tell me more about what that is. So you know Jim Kramer. He's the annoying guy who's always saying bye bye bye, sell 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 on on um on the TV. Yeah. Uh, the weird thing is, you know how there's certain people who their opinions actually end up being signals, like market signals of like when the top is or when the bottom is. Someone apparently has been setting up like an inverse Kramer tracker basically whenever he says to buy something selling whenever he says to sell something buying and it's um outperforming the S&P at the moment um and so yeah that was a question for us would you ever invest in an inverse Kramer ETF if it became approved for some weird reason is he on CNN NBC that's the one yes um the thing with this is what's like the equivalent of regulatory capture except where other kind of vested interests are influencing the business channels I think anyone who ever appears in the talking heads or in their own special segment on one of these business channels is pushing their own agenda. It's not unbalanced analysis of the markets. Fair enough. They're um, getting paid to shill is what's happening. So was that, was that yes, you would invest in a... No, because no? that's not how you should think about <laughs> investing. You should be working from first principles to think about so you should only be investing in areas you really deeply understand. And you can do this. You can invest in the kind of change you want to see in the world. Um, that's a bad idea, but it's the principled way if it aligns with what the value-based investing is telling you. Uh, or, or you can just know an area really well, understand the secular trends, and then sit long and tight and hope that the world realizes what you already know, which is that you're right. Hence the name for this podcast. I don't think that's why it's called this. Um, but we did go through approximately 250 names to get here. So that's how I've always interpreted it. I think we're doing well. Uh, so is that the end of the uh, what's happening segment? So this, this one is very much up your street. What do you do if, one, inflation is high, two, the 
sterling is dying versus other currencies. Three, you think equities are going to take a dive. And four, you think the UK property market is gearing up for another dive. The forecasts aren't there for inflation to reach 20% next year in the UK. That's really dire. All of the assets that I thought I could hide and run to, which was the stock market, that's not going to go well. Uh, there's going to be a pretty bad recession. Uh, so I've squirreled away some capital, some va- some things of value, and what should I put them into? I guess that's the question. And I think this is a very UK-centric question as well, because the dollar has reached highs not seen since, I think, 2002 or something. And... It's against, highest against the yen since 1998. Oh my God. And yen. The, the likelihood of the pound reaching parity with the dollar has increased dramatically. And I never thought we'd see a day when that happened. So, yeah, this is, if you're living in the UK, being paid in pounds, then you have, have property. Yeah, all we of have those mismanaged things. our economy. Yeah, that's true. Like, what do you do? So, as usual, capital flight to the dollar is a safe haven. It's, that is happening again. I would have normally said um, stock up on Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's tracking very closely to the stock market. Yeah. So um, at the moment, a lot of people come up with really, I think, sort of flippant advice, which is like invest in physical objects, like do that job that you need to do in the kitchen, kitchen refurb, um, buy a car. I saw some really rich like, people on Twitter being like, oh, you need to just invest in um, land for an olive farm. And I was like, no, that's not normal advice that anyone can normally take. Um, good but for them, though, that they can do postponing a purchase of a thing that is a physical object or some labor that gets concretified into a house extension, then maybe now is the right time to do it before everything gets more expensive and your money is worth less. So that's kind of one way of thinking about it. Um, I think there's no good answers. Do you have any thoughts? Um, I thought the answer was kind of in the question, in the sense of flight to the dollar. So like jump into Revolut and buy as much dollars as you can with or as a form of savings. But I'm always nervous about that because you know you're not going to keep all your eggs in one basket and it feels like pinning all your hopes on US stability seems great right now. There's going to be... a you know, a, a point where that might suddenly seem to be bad advice at some point in the future. And I don't think we'll be able to predict that the same way that, you know, I don't think any of us had really factored in the impact of Russia invading Ukraine, the impact on uh, energy prices in Europe and the, and the cascading effects that's going to happen across Europe and across the UK. It's, it's not really a black swan event, but it's kind of unpredictable. Putting everything in the US dollar will be great when the US dollar keeps crushing everything else. But I worry what will happen when the US dollar creates global inflation, just exports inflation to everywhere else that's not the US, and then the US domestic market, if it can't provide enough demand for everything they make in the US, they just won't be able to export anything. I kind of wonder if... You know, if we really had the courage of our convictions, what we'd be saying right now is Ethereum. You know, if you put your money in Ethereum, it's a very good time for Ethereum in particular. There's more questions on that in our This Week in Crypto section from listeners. Let's go. So before we go to that, uh, I have a question for you. Yes. What is this week's non-sponsor? 
weirdly enough, this week's not non-sponsor is Give Directly. Do you know Give Directly? No. The, th- the reason it popped back up, I've been, it's a not non-profit charity that essentially does direct cash transfers to people in extreme poverty. So think like Kenya, Uganda, lots of sub-Saharan Africa. They're even doing trials in other parts of the world and kind of different communities to just uh, to basically see what the impact is of aid instead of giving people a goat or teaching them to fish or just stuff that they then might not be what they need it's just giving them cash it's kind of a very simple solution to an aid problem um and then importantly tracking that with good data and on the ground interviews and analysis with academic um, teams from different universities who are looking at it from a kind of randomized controlled trial perspective, trying to mod- check, you know, okay, well, what's the impact on inflation? Okay, how much, of, what was the money spent on? How does that impact people's general well-being? And what's the multiplier effect of giving a dollar to someone in terms of the knock-on effect for growing the economy? And I've been given to give directly um, for years now, just a standard amount a month. And you can see directly kind of the impact of that it's not like you know when you get something that's like you are paying for a school and something and mm. you're not really you're paying for administration and people's travel and a whole load of other things here you're literally <laughs> you're like you gave money to this person they decided to um, upgrade the roof on their house because it turns out for ten dollars a month or fifteen dollars a month you can you can do stuff like that in kenya fifteen dollars here you're not going to do much actually in terms of aid but it jumped back into my consciousness because Rory Stewart, who used to be a politician in the UK, recently became the president for Give Directly. And it was, he was talking about it on his podcast with uh, Alistair Campbell called The Vestas Politics, which is a really interesting one about UK politics. and kind of covers a bit of global affairs. Um, and talking about the mission for Give Directly. And it really reminded me that at this particular moment where we're suffering with energy crisis and inflation, people in extreme poverty are really, really suffering and you know the flooding in pakistan i mean there's a many many other examples around the world where there's people who are really really in dire straits and actually any money that we can give directly to people on the ground actually has a much bigger impact so yeah that was our not a sponsor jonathan thank you very much so give directly link is in the show notes yeah and it's time for this week in crypto where we have more questions but before that i would like to just get a quick market update from you so this week in the crypto and the markets, overall, the markets are down about 3%. But as of Wednesday, there was a situation where they were down 6 or 7% from the Jackson Hole speech. So things weren't looking so great. Crypto is more or less level pegging from a week ago. So Bitcoin's in about $20,000. Ethereum's been hanging in around the $1,500 range, but going up slightly uh, over the week. I think some things that are big ticket items, the, the big events, um, you'll remember that since June the 1st, uh, Russia, the Nord Stream gas pipeline that supplies the bulk of, of the gas coming to Europe, and Russia is supplying about 40% of Europe's energy. And since June the 1st, they've been turning down the volume that's going through that, down to about 20%. Uh, and then at Wednesday, they said, okay, we need to close it for three days because of an issue with the turbine. And then on Friday, when the G7 put in a price cap on like an oil leak, Russia oil. So the G7 got together to say, we're not going to pay more than this. 
for Russian oil because we don't want to keep funding the war in Ukraine. Then that same day, immediately, Russia said, okay, well, the problem with this gas pipeline is that we need to now close it indefinitely because of some issues that we need to look at. Uh, yeah, they mentioned it was a, like a leak, a leak of some sort. or malfunctions on a key turbine. So there's that. In the city of Chengdu, there's been a more COVID, because of the China's zero COVID policy in, in Chengdu, more there's, been more, there's been more lockdowns. And then that's probably enough for the time being. I mean, some things have happened and then the markets have been uh, in their longest losing streak in more than three years after a seventh consecutive daily decline. Oh. So that's this week in crypto and the markets. <laughs> so um, with that, maybe we can go to some other questions. So <laughs> there's another question here about what do your wives think about crypto? Um, I can't speak for both of our wives. What does your wife think about um, crypto? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that my wife thinks that it depends on which part of the cycle we're in. And also, um, it depends on kind of, you know, when you ask her. I think that there's there's times when uh, nearly always her instinct is to cash out. That's kind of g generally where she's coming from. But uh, at any point in the past year, that's probably been a good instinct, actually, in hindsight. Um, I mean, she's always right. That's the truth. But, yeah, generally that's where she is in terms of gut instinct. I think she uh, I think she leaves a lot of the crypto stuff to me, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. How about you? Jen is kind of, I think, intrigued, but doesn't really get it. And she's very open about not really getting it. I think she is more nervous now than at any point in the last couple of years, which is understandable given where things are in the market. And I think... More nervous as well because of some of the centralized exchanges, you know, and she's not comfortable with cold storage or any of I've, you know, I'm trying to bring her up to speed with it, but it is a daunting task for people who aren't even familiar with crypto and why on earth you would do it to then also say that whole company, web browser, Coinbase or crypto.com or whatever, take it out of that and put it into this USB pen drive because mm. that's going to be more secure. It's kind of a that's a hard sell. Do you know, since the Celsius collapse, ledger sales have gone up 4x. I mean, that's good for ledger, actually. Mm. Good for everyone, to be honest. Interesting learning curve for everyone who's doing that. I mean, I've got a question for you on this topic. So given the story about Binance and Department of Justice doing a money laundering investigation into Binance, oh, um, would you ever keep material funds on a centralized exchange? And if so, which one? You know what? There's two two things that have made me think about that, even before the Binance one. One was the first was Celsius, then was the Tornado Cash OFAC sanctioning, which really highlighted just how quickly you could go from being a completely normal, legal, above board user to suddenly being just like blocked from using anything. And that could happen even on a centralized exchange or more likely on that. I. Trust Kraken for security and just for pragmatism. I think they're very focused on just not messing things up, which is good. I think Binance had a good track record. It's a bit nervous that they're getting investigated by the DOJ at the moment for money laundering. I've said before, if they were a big bank, they might get away with it better. The other one that I used to be 
very comfortable with this crypto.com. Given what happened with Celsius, maybe have, I, I've tried to have less exposure there because whilst they're really great from a user experience perspective and haven't have taken measures to rein things in and not expose themselves to more risk, you just never know. What about you? Um, I agree with you about Kraken. That does give off a very strong, trustworthy and highly secure vibe and their backers as well instill a lot of confidence in them and their conduct to date. Yeah, in general, uh, the whole point of crypto is you're not meant to be keeping things on these centralized exchanges. Now, who wants to get a hammer and a chisel and a piece of metal and write like 20 words into that chunk of metal and then put their money into like a tiny USB drive? What are you doing even? Who is that? And why? So people seem to need intermediaries. I, I'm not unsympathetic to that, but... Um, that's not how crypto is supposed to be. Mm. Fair enough. Out of interest, what is your best and worst crypto investment? I'm sorry, you're going to go for biggest absolute losers in my portfolio. They're all, I mean, bad. they're all bad. So, so sorry, the answer is they've all been bad. <laughs> okay, there we go. Good. Uh, next. Uh, oh, this is one that you would have a view on what do you think of dydx doing a liveness check on tell me how it works so you get 25 us dollars if you can prove that you're not a robot yeah so they've claimed it's be not kyc it's to prevent civil attacks where there are multiple people the same person having lots of wallets and just trying to get 25 dollars each time but you require to turn on your webcam mm. it does some scanning of mm. your face right. to see that your face hasn't been used against another wallet right and, yeah, what do you think? Um, I mean, presumably it's checking that your eyeballs move and that your face is 3D and yeah, that yeah. the but, relationship between different you facial features yeah. is, like, unique. Um, I mean, that's like when a web form requires you to identify fire hydrants. It's also kind of how Face ID and any of the phone and lock things work, right? They're not, they're not actually KYCing you. What you're nervous about is that it's a step closer to a decentralized exchange source of doing a kind of KYC check. I think that's what the, prompted the question. Um, I'm kind of okay with it because it's optional. It's like if you want the $25 thing. How, how are decentralized exchanges getting away with not doing KYC? And what will the, what will the government move be from whichever of the US agencies decides that it needs to move on this, in order to impose proper KYC onto the decentralized on and off ramps to crypto. Mm. So can I use D DYDX to get money into fiat, into a bank account? So far, no. the answer has been, I can get money in, but not off. So it's, it's an on ramp, but not an off ramp. No, 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 it's neither. So no, because they, I, I recall it, you telling me that DYDX had added a feature where I could pull credit card money in but they partnered with ramp for right. that and like banks and all those which do kyc right. so all of the partners there's only one partner that shapeshift have partnered with um which i will pull up the details for momentarily which actually is a non-kyc on ramp and who knows how long that will last i think the moment you touch a bank you're going to end up mm. with that and mm. so there'll always be that on ramp so the, the reason why the, banks, right? the decentralized exchanges have got away with it so far is because you 
cannot leave the crypto ecosystem. Correct. And as long as you're not using, uh, well, I would argue as long as it's not a digital currency from like a fiat currency or a stable coin in the future, that should still remain the case. Stable coin regulation will almost certainly force that to happen. But the liveness check, I'm not too fussed by if you want $25 and you want, and they need to put themselves on giving it to the same person more than once, that's probably a good UX. Do you have any more for me? Question for you. Um, <laughs> God, I don't, I'm not sure about the terminology here, but what do you think that the future is like with Ethereum 2.0? And are we likely to see the price increase significantly? So Ethereum 2.0, the shift to proof of stake happening in the next two weeks, pretty imminent. The future generally is bright from a technology perspective. It improves, it improves a lot of things. It won't improve scalability but it will hopefully improve levels of decentralization, levels of security should remain the same. The dependency on miners for en- and the, the deeper demand for energy will drop by about 99%, which is really good. And it allows the whole team to focus on other things that do help with scalability. So all of those are very good. Will we see a price increase? I'm still of the view that actually the, 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 the price of Ethereum right now has that priced in. And actually after the merge, people will generally sell. You know, people who have who've thought about it and think, oh, something magical is happening. They'll, the long-awaited thing will happen yeah. and it will sell. The only flip side to that is question that I had for you actually which is linked to this which is what happens if the Ethereum merge to move to proof of stake fails and in this context what does it failure even mean? It depends on the nature of the failure event so if it's the thing that we were worried about which we previously touched on where uh, there's some kind of fork because of the inability to be a validator but still remain compliant with the Treasury's OFAC ruling against against Monado Cash, then that results in a fork of two separate Ethereum blockchains. That could be very serious. Things could always be rolled back. I think if it doesn't go well and there's a failure of leadership or a failure to have consensus amongst the miners and if for a long time it's not resolved, it could conceivably be the end of the Ethereum project. Um, but by, by a long time, I mean, if it rumbles on for a month and a half with no real progress towards any kind of resolution or uh, a, a chain that has primacy, obvious primacy over the other, uh, that could potentially spell the end for Ethereum. But I don't see that. I see the likelihood of that happening as very low, like less than 5%, 3%. So September 15th, approximately, is when the merge will happen. I think there's a lot of things that could go wrong with the merge that may, and I don't mean things that would have been picked up in like the normal test nets that have happened. I mean, we we don't, I guess we have, so the merge really, it's shifting your consensus layer, right? Your execution layer remains the same. It's shifting your, it's merging actually the execution layer to that beacon chain, which is your previous state one. So actually the 
execution layer will move to proof of stake and everything will be run by validators. Miners will switch off their stuff. What happens when you move to validators running it? It shifts the makeup, the power makeup of the whole network, which could be interesting because at the moment you've got a lot of these pools or these major exchanges that are running loads of Ethereum validators. And actually a lot of them are based in the US or they're big exchanges and they're, they are open to regulatory pressure in a way that miners just aren't. And that is really, really worrying because the thing that concerns me the most about Ethereum is that it could, its ideological stance could fracture. It's been pretty consistent in terms of what it's trying to build at the moment under the stewardship of the Ethereum Foundation, Vitalik Buter and a lot of leaders in the space that, are, that have the right ideology. But censorship resistance, which is the ultimate aim of the whole decentralized network, shouldn't be up for debate. But right now, because of the regulatory pressure and what's happened with um, the OFAC um, sanction against Tornado Cash, is that it's now on the cards and you're getting this kind of like fracturing within the community of how to resolve that. Do you go and slash um, validators from Coinbase if they start censoring certain blocks? And that's a dividing the community because if you start slashing people for that, you're almost imposing a form of censorship based on the you know you split split it and there's no formalized way of slashing they don't have a proven mechanism because that wasn't available in mining so there's loads of unknowns that happen from a governance perspective when you move to proof of stake that just weren't there in mining and that worries me because ethereum's success i think has been it's kind of uh what is it it's like the lindy effect lindy effect where people are just really comfortable with it and they know that it's like actually going to stick around because of strong values and principles and a team that really really cares about its direction and not just the money grab there's a big risk at the moment that once you bring in coinbase and binance and kraken and all these other you know big institutions and they become validators on that they're going to have a very different incentive and their interpretation of it might be it might break that ideology so yes yeah good points um any other questions what do you put the percentage of that as of Near term, mm, not not very so high, on, like almost minuscule. Long... In, in mid-September, do you see there as being some kind of calamitous thing that makes no, no. it fall over? No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not worried about that. I but think you do see a sell-off post-merge. I think there'll be a. I think there'll be a sell-off post-merge just because the initial hype around it not falling over that people will be happy with. But generally, people are expecting magic, and like there isn't much magic and also the thing the economics that shifts when you get to proof of stake where you have the burning of transactions you have miners not needing to sell because validators don't have as much capital expense uh, or operation expense of like energy so in that sense there's less selling pressure but there's a lot of built-up expectations around you know oh eth2 and actually all those people will use an opportunity to sell so um, what about the lockup where people had to keep their ETH, their 30 or 40 ETH stake? 32. Their 32 ETH staked for, I want to say, 18 months. Uh, yeah, yeah. When is that coming to an end? Uh, I think that's it's reliant on another upgrade, so it could be six months away after this merge. And um, But that's not where the, the selling happens, right? It's short sellers, it's people on exchanges, it's people just dumping, you know, what they've they pumped up. I think that will happen just because there isn't... you. you People don't realize there's the thing to look forward to beyond the merge, 
we'll be six months or a year down the line, and that's a long time to wait during a global recession. <laughs> it's like, I don't think, I'm not, I've not got my hopes up for it. So Thank you for these positive up. news stories. <laughs> You're welcome. Jonathan, uh, I think it might be time for this week in NFTs. Can I pick on this particular topic, which I think through my own ignorance, I haven't really appreciated. So Metaverse music concerts. Yeah. How familiar are you with them? So it was improbable, the UK company that uh, partnered with Yuga Labs because they, they had some innovations, didn't they? Like spatial audio and the ability to have thousands of people in an online space. And one of the times that they demoed that was with a Metaverse concert. Spatial audio means that you can hear people around you and you feel like you're in the thing. So, and as they are further away from you in the Metaverse space, they're quieter. So, and as sound reaches you from inside the metaverse space that you're in it's dampened as you would expect it to do to be by surrounding objects there's reverb and it's atmosphere dampened so improbable linked up with yuga i've never been to a metaverse concert have you no this is why i wanted to talk it through so one of the things i wanted to ask is have you seen in fact you can watch it the mtv awards the vmas with yes. snoop dogg and eminem doing from the D to the LBC. So do you mean like the static video rather than a live performance? No, the live performance they did. Oh, tell me more. So they did a live performance where um, the actual music video itself, it brings in their NFTs, their bored apes, and they kind of, it's, it's really nicely produced actually, very composite uh, CGI to kind of have them essentially smoking a joint entering this kind of dreamlike state and being dropped into a metaverse with their board apes. So it's the them. same narrative as in the video that we've seen. Right. But they're they, doing they did it, it live. live. How did they do it live? Um, did, they, did they come on stage? They came on stage. Okay, and then how, and was then, it like a screen near them that was projecting the metaverse? Yeah, basically, where the lights drop and it switches. And so it's not, it's like semi-live. I don't think it was like Weird. Was the metaverse packed. version real-time or was it pre-recorded? It looked pre-recorded um, and then switched back and then it, but anyway, it looked pretty meh and it got a lot of criticism because obviously all the crypto people loved it, all the Yuga people loved it. Oh, amazing. But then it made me start thinking, okay, this isn't the first time this has happened. These happen a lot, way more than people might realize. And I started looking at um, the other categories because this was kind of, the reason they've done that is because MTV is not becoming very relevant. The VMAs aren't very relevant. They've got a new category, which is like best metaverse performance as an award thing. And this was the prompt for that, where they did their performance. And then the other people who were being nominated was BTS, who did a collaboration with Minecraft and YouTube. Um, Charlie XCX for a collaboration with Roblox. 21 Pilots for a collaboration with Roblox. Justin Bieber, who did a collaboration with the concert platform Wave, which I don't know. Um, and it was Blackpink who actually... Uh, one for their collaboration, I think, was with was with Roblox as well. But, um, oh no, theirs was with um, PUBG, you know, like a Fortnite equivalent, but in better graphics, PUBG Mobile. So they did their concert in that uh, survival game. Anyway, I looked into historical ones and I found one from a year ago, August last year, Ariana Grande, collaboration with Fortnite. And it's it's mad. In fact, can I send you the um Please do. The link. And what? I just want you to 
zoom like flick through to uh while you send it to me timestamp um i'll tell you the improbable games um cool. concert that they did it was with the k-pop star alexa and it had 1450 fans right inside it so the metrics on this one will will be a bit more than that um <laughs> but have a look i'm curious what you think should i play it with sound yeah and um skip through to i don't know like a couple like a few minutes in like whichever the time stamps are where you start to um see more things happening and then you can kind of describe what you're seeing but we'll put the link in the show notes so um there are four people on a biplane firing at a sort of minotaur whilst flying around it there's loads of bubbles everywhere now I'm going to say it's Ariana Grande holding a very large hammer, walking up an enormous staircase, a lot of white marble. Um, she's being chased by the five characters that we saw earlier uh, who were able to catch up with her by walking through archways of shattered mirrors. And we're floating underneath the enormous spacecraft above a Fortnite-style uh, landscape below us which is an island with a few uh, rings of light around it moving fast enough to create wind so you're essentially seeing it from the point of view of the person who's recorded that who's gone into fortnite started running around almost like a game level and then exploring that world which is itself an interactive concert and that was a year ago and hazard a guess how many people attended that metaverse concert uh fortnite levels capped aren't they so, uh, but they're, quite, they're capped quite high. The levels are the dedicated concert things. They have different, completely different rules. So it's, it's a dedicated concert. I'm going to hazard a guess because you, you're giving me all the hints. I'm giving you a big number. Yeah. 10,000 people. A bit more. 20,000 people. I may say a lot more, actually. 50,000 people. Just go orders of magnitude bigger. 1 billion people. <laughs> okay, too far. It was attended by 27.7 million unique users. And it, at one point, they had 12.3 million concurrent users. All at that concert. Concert, Metaverse concert. Wow. It's a lot, right? So when we talk about Yuga having 4,500 people concurrently in a Metaverse thing and doing similar things, attacking a code of all together, they had millions of people. I don't think they're all in the same physical, metaphysical space uh, where they can like all be together. They must have to create like parallel worlds happening in in, in sync but you think there's lots of instances lots of instances it kind of doesn't matter to happening. you how no. much are you interacting with the people around you at a concert uh well normally not at all right but mm. with this i mean you're on the same plane this is more like a, it's like a it's more like a music festival right. so you kind of do want to interact with people if they're but it friends. doesn't matter if it's like 10 subset instances right because you're not actually going to talk to 12 million other people. Or you're not standing at the pyramid tent only to find out that you're in the wrong instance. Right. But um, this has been well, like very well recognized as the biggest. So it's the, been the biggest metaverse concert. It was a year ago. And actually, if you look at it, it's far better than anything that I've seen in the crypto NFT space. The interesting thing here is like the whole, it blew my mind how many people went to it for a start. That actually, and clearly you weren't expecting it to be in the millions. Yeah. And the quality of what's happening is quite interesting because I've never been to a concert like that, but it actually looks quite 
cool to have like game experience concert dynamics all happening together that's actually what maybe a younger generation think of as a concert like that's kind of what they want rather than what we would normally go to where you sit or you stand and you watch a performance on stage and maybe jump around or dance yeah this is like a very different uh, mechanic (laughs) yeah i think the whole point of music is that you're asking to be taken out of quotidian experience you're saying transcend me in some way and so seeing somebody stood on a stage very far away making sounds is not quite the same as flying around a magical realm with pillars and stuff right where you can still have the spatial audio you can still have other things that they might have factored into that but the interesting thing here is like i think what i've what's dawned on me is that Fortnite and epic games obviously are light years ahead when it comes to putting on these type of events like i just hadn't even fathomed that a whole year ago that was what they were doing like that's blown my mind how far behind i was thinking about it but the mechanics of it from an economics perspective and a business perspective is that they basically give Ariana Grande a ton of money. They monetize it through V-Bucks and through getting people. You know, some of them were wearing Ariana Grande avatar outfits and like wearables and things. Mm. And it's all through their Fortnite ecosystem. And she's obviously building that relationship with fans, but through Fortnite, not mm. through a direct relationship where she like is, is actually selling her own things it's actually just through the Fortnite partnership so these are interesting collaborations but they're the the reason why a lot of artists now are starting to just dabble with this whole nft metaverse space is they obviously realize instead of giving a ton of money to Fortnite or to PUBG or to minecraft or whoever it is and and having a one-off event where they're basically paid a lot of money so it's still very good but they could actually own that relationship with the users by selling their own nfts their own wearables or avatar things and control that experience and relationship much much better than just having a partnership with one platform yeah maybe if you think of the platform as the music venue do you want each artist to have their own music venue i mean obviously at the very high end the big name stars could be worth them building yeah. their own metaverse venue for their performances and making that their world. But, um, I mean, in the longer tail, it's not worth everyone having their own bespoke music venue and metaverse, is it? It's not about that. It's more about, I think, the merch that you're selling at that and how you're selling tickets to that event. You don't normally go to, I don't know, the O2 Arena. And I don't, I'm not sure when you buy stuff from their merch stores, is it basically... Is it all owned and manufactured and created by the O2? Or I don't know. I don't know how that moves into a digital space, but you'd imagine it'd be nice to retain that commercial relationship and that fan base, digital footprint of whatever things that you're selling, digital property and experiences beyond it just being Fortnite IP, Fortnite property. I think that's maybe where the interesting thing is from a music artist, that you're not tied into... All future things now should be done through Fortnite because that's where the people, my fans, invested all their time and money. Mm. And if I go move to Roblox, oh, they have to go and rebuy the things that they've already spent with the Fortnite. You know what I mean? Being able to take that across wherever I want to perform digitally is probably what what the equivalent would be music venue-wise. Thanks for sharing that. That's really great. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just struck by, you know, like often people... It kind of doesn't matter what the thing is, but they want a thing to be able to identify with and then tell other people that that's their, that's their thing and how, how they express themselves. So you 
you also want to be able to take it out of that ecosystem. Um, mm. Or maybe you don't, because actually, like, everyone that cares about that is in that ecosystem. Yeah, no, maybe. Maybe so, there is there is a bit of both to it. And I, I understand from what you're saying about from the artist's point of view. Yeah. They want a direct connection directly to their fans. That's about having a channel. I don't think you necessarily want all the other stuff that comes with running a venue, which is handling the ticketing, doing the enforcement, preventing scalping, and making sure that you have effectively bouncers inside the venue. Uh, like having to have that whole set, there's more yeah, to it. Do you, well. you don't have to construct yeah. that whole mechanism. So I could imagine uh, metaverse spaces becoming recognized venues um, and, and quite cool ones as well. Jonathan, mm. speaking of uh, venues, I don't know if this is uh, this might be our last time in the Waterloo podcast podcast studios of Brewdog. Um, for the time being, for the time being, I'll give you a hint. Next week, if we record wherever we record, I'm planning on us talking a little bit about the looming energy crisis and UK practical interventions as we prepare for winter. Because I've been thinking about it a lot, and I know you have, so. Food for thought. I for mean, next week. You're, you're saying that you've been prepping. <laughs> um, yes, scribbling away ideas for I've winter. been gathering wood for winter. Literally. Actual firewood. Well, we'll pick that up next week. Very good. Cool. Jonathan, good. great pod. Great pod. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, hey, I like talking to you. And so from a